This morning we are going to be continuing in the book of John. Uh, We're going to be looking at a passage from John chapter 5 where we left off last week. As many of you know, we've been slowly working our way through the gospel of John and we find ourselves in the middle of John's fifth chapter, which just happens to see Jesus turn his attention to this topic of life and of resurrection. But it being Easter morning, I couldn't help flipping forward a few chapters all the way to the end of John's gospel, John chapter 20, and taking a moment to read together of that resurrection report from that first Easter morning that John records in John chapter 20. I'm going to be reading from verse 1 through verse 23, that first Easter, Christ's resurrection, John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. That first resurrection morning, Jesus appearing to his disciples. 
Jesus' resurrection, what's striking from that passage, is that for his closest followers, it was a surprise. These were the men and women who had spent most likely three years at least following Jesus around, traveling with him, listening to him teach, seeing the signs, the miracles he worked. They had heard him talk about resurrection, talk about life and life eternal, but somehow they hadn't seen this coming. But here Jesus was, alive, risen, standing in their midst, speaking these words, peace to you. There was no disputing his death. They had seen it. They had fled in horror of it, broken apart his followers. But there was now no disputing this life, this resurrection Jesus in their midst. In the passage that follows where I stopped reading, Thomas would go on to feel the wounds in his hand and in his side. And it says that Thomas believed But there was more to this realization than the physical presence of Jesus. Sure, that must have been the initial shock. Here he is, alive, standing with us. But suddenly, in light of this resurrection, so much of what Jesus had been saying and teaching began to make sense. Even here in John 20, John specifically tells us that this resurrection hadn't been what they were looking for until they saw it. More than once throughout John's gospel, we get this idea, all the way back into those first chapters that we've been preaching through. John admits that so often the disciples misunderstood what Jesus was saying and doing because they hadn't seen his resurrection yet. And that when they had seen his resurrection, suddenly so much of what he had said and done clicked into place and made sense in ways that in the moment it hadn't. You might remember from John chapter 2, several weeks ago, we looked at it when Jesus had predicted that when this temple was destroyed, he would rebuild it in three days. Those who heard him said, it's taken us decades to build this temple and you would build it again in three days. And John records, when therefore they saw him raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. What seemed confusing And perplexing to them one day, now in light of his resurrection, suddenly made sense. In this case, he was the temple rebuilt in three days. The resurrection that John records is far more than a happy ending to a story that seemed like a tragedy. Some happily ever after, some unexpected surprise at the end that turns the story around. The resurrection of Jesus, Easter, is a story of vindication. God vindicating and confirming what Jesus had taught and done, what so many had opposed and criticized. Jesus had been right. What he claimed was proven true. Death defeated, brokenness restored, a first fruit of a resurrection to come. Resurrection is proof. Actual, the physical Jesus standing before them, And through history of the church proclaiming this, he is risen, he is risen indeed. The claims of Christ would not be silenced by the cross. There was no canceling Jesus or his message. You would hear it, you would see it affirmed and vindicated by God, and you would be given a choice to believe. 
I imagine this week, as I was thinking about that resurrection conversation between Jesus and his disciples, that many of them surely thought back to this passage we look at in John chapter 5, when Jesus had taken up this very topic of resurrection. Jesus had come into the temple complex and healed a man, a man who had been lame for 38 years. Jesus had commanded him, take up your mat and walk, and just like that, the man had been restored. But there was a problem. It was the Sabbath, and Jesus had specifically told the man to take up his mat, a violation of the Sabbath rules. Far from backing down, when Jesus was confronted by the Jewish leaders, he doubled down on it. He had the right to command this man to take up his mat on the Sabbath because, as we looked at it last week, God had given him the power and the authority to judge all and to give life. Last week, we looked at that claim that Jesus had to judge. Jesus, by his very presence in their midst, by his teaching and revealing who he was, forced people to decide what they would make of him, how they would respond to him. We do it now. We hear Christ proclaimed this message of death and resurrection, and we're forced to reckon with it. You can't avoid it. You have to decide, who is Jesus? What do you make of him? How do you respond to him? And in this, Christ becomes a kind of present judgment, a revealing of what we think, of what we want, of what we actually believe about him. But Jesus didn't say he came simply to out people's true allegiances. He also came, according to this passage, that we might have life, eternal life, a resurrection life. I want to look at this second point that he makes in John chapter 5. Jesus, the one who has been given by God the power of life itself. We left off last week in John chapter 5, verse 25. We'll be reading through verse 29, this next section. Remember, Jesus is standing amongst those Jewish leaders opposed to his healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds to them, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of of judgment. I want to look at a couple of ideas this morning as we reflect on this conversation of resurrection. Surely one of the things that those disciples seeing him resurrected would have remembered and understood now anew in light of his actual resurrection. Jesus asked his audience to compare a couple of things. First, life to come versus life now, which we'll look at. And second, the idea of marveling at what Jesus has said versus hearing what Jesus had said. The first of these is this claim to life. Jesus opens that passage with a kind of prophetic view towards the future. It sounds prophetic. Verse 22, an hour is coming. The Jewish people and those leaders would have been used to language like this. In the first century, they lived in an era in which there was a great energy of anticipation, 
Many of them believed by calculating prophecies from the Old Testament that they were living in the years in which those Old Testament prophets had predicted a Messiah would return and usher in a new era. All over ancient Israel, there was an energy and an anticipation that the hour was coming, that a messianic figure would step forward, that the occupation of Rome, the bondage they lived under, would be freed. This coming hour Jesus refers to, he links to this idea of the dead being raised to life. Now, it's possible to read that and think of that as figurative. When Jesus comes, all the things that are dead will find new life and be living. At first, it could be figurative. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. But by the end of the conversation, Jesus leaves no ambiguity about this prediction. In verse 28, he makes it explicit. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. That this resurrection hour to come for Jesus is an actual coming event. Real bodies, real tombs, real resurrection. As we've looked at uh, working our way through John, Jesus so often when he says these things is drawing from his own Old Testament passages. And here, surely he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah in chapter 26 is recording a time in Israel's history when they found themselves painfully aware of their own failures and shortcomings. They looked around the world and what they discovered was one in which all of the things they had hoped and believed for seemed to have failed. They found themselves in the midst of exile and brokenness. And as hard as they had worked, as much energy as they had put into securing for themselves the kind of world they wanted to live in, all of those hopes and aspirations had failed them. Isaiah writes in chapter 26, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she's near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in this earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. What Isaiah was capturing was this grand sense of disappointment and disillusion. We believed, we fought for it, we suffered for it, we hoped and expected something better. We dreamed about it and gave everything we had to pull it off, this better world, this better place. But our best efforts have given us only emptiness, air, wind. We couldn't deliver anything, and evil has not fallen, but stands proud and tall all around us, us, a defeated and humiliated people. What Isaiah is capturing is a sense that this world is a mess. I don't know if any of you have ever felt or experienced something like this in your own day. No matter how hard we try, we don't seem to be sorting it out very well. We don't seem to be fixing any of the things that are broken. Though we pour our biggest budgets and our best talent and all of our best ideas, what we reap in return, what we find birthed is nothing, is emptiness, no deliverance. Our best efforts leave us empty-handed. But Isaiah went on to declare, But a day is coming when your dead shall rise, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, 
and the earth will give birth to its dead. Isaiah is comparing these two expectations for the world, our expectations, which produce emptiness, but a promise that God will one day bring all of the dead from their tomb in a celebration, a singing of joy. An hour is coming when all will be raised. For Jesus, surely he is still thinking of Isaiah and this resurrection in Isaiah. Whenever he says that that coming resurrection, when those tombs are emptied, will be for those who believe a resurrection to life, and for those who do not, a resurrection to judgment. This resurrection that's to come, this anticipated hour, this messianic hour, would be one in which all things were revealed. For Isaiah, he goes on in that passage to say, For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed soon and will no more cover its slain. In other words, what Isaiah predicts is there is a coming resurrection in which nothing goes forgotten. Nothing remains hidden. No one gets away with anything. The evil and broken and injustice of this world are not swept under the rug any longer, but truth is finally exposed. This is the judgment we talked about last week. All things revealed for what they actually are. And maybe you're thinking, not exactly the Easter Sunday morning service I was expecting, thank you very much, but sounds like the Bible, doesn't it? So typical of the Bible. One day to get up and celebrate a little joy, and we have to talk about judgment and wrath and sin exposed. Thank you for a wonderful Easter sermon. If what you're hearing or imagining has something to do with Dante's Inferno, the burning and anger and the dark clouds of that coming day of judgment. That's probably what most of the people listening to Jesus as he talked about the coming hour would have imagined too. That hour to come is a future apocalypse, the end of times. That day somewhere down the road, the documentaries from the History Channel are flooding your imagination right now. An hour is coming. But to hear Jesus say only that future apocalyptic hour is to miss one of the most shocking things that Jesus says in this passage. Look at it again, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Here Jesus was, standing in the midst of these Jewish leaders. They've come to cause trouble with him because he has commanded a man on a Sabbath to take up his mat. This is a finite and specific dispute, a charge they bring to Jesus. But all around them, it's a typical day in Jerusalem. Besides these confrontational conversations with Jesus, nothing else about this day is recorded in history. Nothing major written down in our ancient calendars. I imagine beyond the earshot of that conversation, Jesus and these leaders, everyone else in Jerusalem was busy about their normal everyday routines. It's not much different here on Easter Sunday morning, to be honest with you. We gather and worship, reflect on resurrection, but you see out the windows. Across the street, I imagine there are people probably just waking up, checking the news on their phones, scrolling through social media, starting a pot of coffee, Thinking it's a beautiful day, why not a Sunday drive? 
getting a jump start on lunch preparations, perhaps with family, thinking about yesterday's mistakes or thinking about the to-do list for tomorrow, Monday morning. In the middle of all of this everydayness, the world as it seems to be over and over, Jesus claims that that future day, that future hour, is now here. Still to come, but somehow by his presence here in this moment as well. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. How could you not scratch your head at Jesus making this claim? The dark clouds, the wrath, the judgment, the sun blotted out, that day, the day of God's reckoning, Jesus says, it is here. And they look around at an everyday Jerusalem and say, what in the world is this guy talking about? Is it all that different than us standing here on Easter and saying, resurrection, life eternal? And most of the world scratches their head and says, seems like another Sunday in April to me. Is not all of this talk of resurrection a little silly? Many of you heard this past week's been a tough one for my family. We uh, got the news last Sunday that my cousin, about my age, who I grew up with in California, would come in every summer to visit. Her husband was killed in a tragic car accident. He was 35, left behind a kid who was 8 and 5. They've asked me to fly out to California and conduct the funeral. So this week, I've been working on two messages— I've been working on an Easter message, resurrection and life, and I've been working on a funeral message about the realities of death, an unexpected one. How do you reconcile it? The hope that an hour is coming, maybe someday, and Jesus saying, no, it's here now. This mess of the world that we find ourselves in with all of our best efforts, producing nothing that looks like heaven, nothing that looks like eternal life, and yet here we gather as a little congregation of people to say Christ is risen, here, now, resurrection, life. There's a second comparison Jesus asks them to make in that conversation. I imagine they did what most people do when we say, Don't you recognize resurrection? (laughs) They scratched their head and marveled at it, Jesus says. Marvel is, to us, a positive-sounding word, but in Greek, it's a very neutral word. Thumazo, it simply means to wonder, to be amazed about something. It has a connotation with it of being a little bit confused. I stand around trying to figure out, recognizing there's something significant about what has just been said, but not quite sure what to do with it, what to make of it. You marvel at it. How could Jesus claim that the hour of judgment, the hour of resurrection, the hour in which the tombs broke open and life came out, how could it be there in the middle of that conversation with him? How wouldn't they wonder and marvel at what Jesus was claiming? But Jesus tells them, don't marvel at this. Don't stand around wondering, confused at what I'm saying. Instead, what he asks of them is to hear, to listen. In verse 24, we looked at it last week, but it's what connects this with the other part of Jesus' conversation. He said to those same leaders, whoever hears my words and believes, remember this is this word we've been translating over and over through John, trusts, 
Whoever hears my word and trusts him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There Jesus goes again, taking things we imagine future, apocalyptic, and forcing them into the present tense of this moment. To believe and to trust in him means that you have already passed from death to life, already living into eternal life. Hear and believe it, trust it, Jesus says. Don't stand around marveling or wondering or speculating, but hear it and do it. The truth is, not many of the people who heard Jesus say that that day did as he commanded, at least not initially. They, even his own disciples, were as confused by all of this talk and spent their time marveling at it versus understanding anything about what it actually had to do with the life they lived the rest of that afternoon. They were too confused by what this resurrection, this present resurrection, might mean to make a difference. But what happened with this conversation when those disciples, the men and women behind that locked door, saw Jesus appear in their midst, when they touched his wounds, when they ate fish with him on the Sea of Galilee's shore, when they realized it was actually him resurrected? I can't help wondering if the empty tomb of that first Easter morning didn't pull their own minds back to Isaiah's promise of empty tombs and this conversation in which Jesus said that hope, that hope of life that Isaiah predicted was present with him here and now. An hour coming, an hour here. A resurrection still to come, but a resurrection now present, Christ's. I wonder if they heard what Jesus had said now in some kind of a new way, realizing something that before they could only marvel at, but now became tangible in his resurrected flesh. Jesus' resurrection changed something. Death was not final, at least not for him. He had overcome it. And if not for him, was it possible that not for others, for those who trusted him, who followed him, who believed him? By Jesus' resurrection, he had declared that death would not have the final statement on our lives. There was more beyond it, more to the story, more here and now because of his resurrection and that resurrection to come. So what was Jesus asking them to do? What was he asking us to do? To hear it. To recognize it. To believe it. To trust it. To somehow hold on to this idea that most scratch their head and marvel at, that we are, by the power of his resurrection, living in the midst of our own resurrection. That death has been defeated. That the hope that that hour is actually here by the proclamation of his death and his resurrection. We are already in on that life. We are not waiting for eternal life. We're not waiting for things to turn out in a positive way. Jesus says that when we listen to him and trust, we pass from death into life. You 
are in on it this morning by faith, by trust, by belief. I'm not naive about that sounding strange. After all, it was Paul who said, for many of the Jews, this whole death and resurrection thing is an offense, and for many of the Gentiles, it sounds like foolishness. It's silly to look at the world around us and say to your neighbor, I'm living resurrected life. (laughs) I'm living an eternal life. I've passed from death to life. It sounds like pie-in-the-sky Sunday school optimism, which might make sense in some figurative way on Easter, but not much sense for the rest of life. But I can't help asking the question, why? Why is it so hard for us to embrace this resurrection, this promise of life that Jesus, having actually passed into it, offers to us? To live as if the resurrection is true is, what, silly because it's too optimistic? Silly because it believes there is nothing and somehow that's a better option? Silly because it chooses life in the midst of a world that looks more like death? Silly because it trusts God to reveal things which seem to us hidden? Because it trusts God to restore things which we seem only capable of destroying? Because it chooses to hope in the face of what feels like hopelessness. Silly because it teaches us to give of ourselves, to sacrifice of ourselves, to share of ourselves. Because in the end, by resurrection, nothing can ultimately be lost. Is it that the resurrection is somehow a silly Sunday morning idea? Or could it be too serious of an idea? Too much for us to reckon with, to work out in our own lives. The, re- the implications of it too great for us to take too seriously. For if we did, how might this resurrection change the way we see ourselves and the world around us? For if we took it seriously, how much about us and about the way we lived might change? For Jesus, in the way that he was speaking to his disciples, resurrection was not just future aspiration. Resurrection was here. This hour. Hear it. Trust it. Believe it. The poet Wendell Berry concludes one of his most famous poems with the line, a simple phrase, practice resurrection. I've always loved that phrase. Practice it. Resurrection like a kind of muscle. Just use your ear, listen, and train yourself to hear more of it, to recognize more of it. Uh, We were actually talking before service. Dan was shocked to know that I played the saxophone at one point in my life. Uh, I actually, in high school, took jazz saxophone lessons from an instructor. And one of the things he would often make me do was listen to a song and then try to repeat licks from that song by ear. No sheet music, listen to it. Now play it. I was absolutely terrible at it, by the way. Some people have this gift from the beginning in better ways than others. But over and over and over, he would play that lick on repeat and make me figure it out by ear. And slowly, I got better at it. I was never great at it, but I got better at it. My ear got better at hearing. I understood the relationship between notes better. 
It wasn't something cognitive, as if I had unlocked some mathematical secret that would help me predict what the next note was coming, but my ear got better at listening and hearing. There are so many great musicians, I think Cheryl's one of them, who does this quite naturally, who just listens and plays by ear. But for the rest of us, we train ourselves to do it. We train ourselves to listen. And listening can, like a muscle, be atrophied. You can stop listening for long enough that you stop hearing, that you lose that skill altogether. The truth is, I'm sure I'm not nearly as good as I once was at listening and playing. Resurrection is something like that. If you hear it once a year at Easter, good luck getting it. Let me put on some John Coltrane album and then here, take the saxophone and play it back to me. It doesn't work like that. It's too big of an idea, too subversive of an idea, too reality-altering of an idea. But if you train your ear, if you listen to it over and over and over, if you strain to hear it more closely, what Jesus is saying, what he has done, what it means, you begin to pick up on the reality of this resurrection and practice it and build this life eternal muscle in ways that without hearing you would never be capable of. Suddenly, as Isaiah had predicted, what your life produces is no longer emptiness. But by this newly trained ear, you begin to recognize life, a new song, a new ability, a power of resurrection, a hope, an optimism where none makes sense without it. You begin to believe, to trust, to hear. Something of that resurrection is here. And Easter Sundays or the one time a year where I can say it as clearly to you as possible, it should make a difference to the way you live. If it is only a holiday once a year, then you've missed the power of it altogether. For it is a power that changes everything about who we are and everything about how we imagine things to go before us. A hope, an assurance, a certainty that we can build with each passing day. One commentator put it this way. On the third day, the friends of Christ, coming at daybreak to the place, found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. But even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth and in a semblance of the gardener God walking in that first garden in the cool, not now of evening, but of dawn. Everything by this moment had changed. Do you hear it? The great Christian writer Frederick Buechner understood how hard it is to hear things like this, to hear the reality of what Christ's resurrection means And in some ways, what we're doing this morning, imagining that you come simply to Sunday mornings to hear me give it to you, is part of what stands in the way. Bigner writes, when a minister reads out of the Bible, I'm sure that at least nine times out of ten, the people who happen to be listening at all hear not what is really being read, but only what they expect to hear read. And I think that most people expect to hear 
from the Bible, an edifying story, an uplifting thought, a moral lesson, something elevating and obvious and boring. So that is exactly what very often they do here. Only that's too bad, because if you really listen, and maybe you have to forget that it is the Bible being read and a minister who's reading it to you, there's no telling what you might hear in it. Resurrection. Don't marvel. Listen. Hear. Let me close with this. An offer and a warning. The offer is that Christ is risen and has promised you that same resurrection. Not just someday that you might put that signed membership card in the back of your pocket and show it whenever that hour does come. But that you are in on his resurrection life in this place, in this hour, in this world. The offer is all you need is to listen and believe, to trust it, to hold on to it, and to seek to hear in it the full implications that it has for your life now. There is also in this offer a warning, the warning that you cannot escape from this passage is the judgment of it. You, having heard the message of his resurrection, must decide what you do with it. He forces life on no one, but offers it freely to all who will hear. But the resurrection, and the way that Jesus describes it, is a judgment. We are raised now, but in a final way, in that coming hour, to be given what it is we most want now. We are exposed for what our hearts long for most. Those who trust, who strain to hear, who want in on it, who long for Christ's resurrection to be their own, find it. And those who don't are given precisely that too. So, what we do in this moment is believe, trust, take up this resurrection, practice this resurrection every day. That hour is coming. That hour is now here. Those who believe have eternal life. Those who hear have passed already from death to life. To us is given this promise of resurrection to be lived. In John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he asks the question, do you believe this? Let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we are here this morning to celebrate Easter, to remind ourselves to remember, to declare to one another into the world that you are resurrected, that you are alive, that you are raised and vindicated over death. But we also recognize in our celebration and our singing and our joy that to us is given a command. Hear this, believe this, trust this, live this. God, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts this morning to make this resurrection not a theological idea or a future hope, but an actual and present power, a hope in the midst of this world and its brokenness. God, where we have made a mess of our lives, 
where we have made a mess of this world. Let your resurrection be a new way, a new life, a new heaven, a new earth. That you have come, that we might not face the consequences, but be given instead by your grace, by your mercy, by your sacrifice, a better way. That to us is given life and life eternal. That we need only take it up. God, train our ears by your spirit to hear more. To recognize more. As you said over and over, this kingdom is coming and is now here. The hour of resurrection is coming and is also here. Let us sense it by the power of your spirit and live into it. Practice this resurrection ourselves. That God, as we do, what we would find in it is hope and joy and boldness and confidence that the sting of death, that the pain of sin and injustice would be wiped away and that instead, by the light of your presence, we would find eternal life. A heart swelling full with worship and gratitude and gladness. So we worship you this morning. We hear and we believe and we trust this morning. We don't stand marveling, scratching our heads, but we stand together to declare you are the resurrected Lord, the resurrected Savior, our hope, our future, our confidence. We declare you to be alive this morning and by your resurrection to be in on this resurrection ourselves. We worship you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.